Hello and welcome to Cybernia, a podcast exploring science in Ireland and beyond, brought to you in association with Discover Science and Engineering. I'm Lenny Antonelli and with me in studio is Neula Kane, who'll be talking to me a bit later about journalist John Ronson's new book, The Psychopath Test. Also coming up on the show, we look at a project to map the genome of a certain popular Irish tuber and Sylvia stops by the Science Gallery in Dublin to check out their new exhibition on the beauty of chemistry. Now, you might have heard of the Human Genome Project, which identified and mapped the 20,000 or so human genes. But what about the Potato Genome Project? A draft sequence of the Spud's genome was published for the first time last month in the prestigious journal Nature. And it probably won't surprise you to find out that a team of Irish scientists was involved. We sent Jared Cunningham along to the headquarters of Chagask, Ireland's main agricultural research body, to find out more. I'm in the Chagask headquarters in the Crop Research Building in Oak Park in County Carlow. And with me is uh, Dan Mulburn, who, along with... uh, Istvan Negi and Maria Laura Di Stefanis is one of the authors of Genome Sequence and Analysis of the Tuber Crop Potato. Just as a few years ago, the Human Genome Project brought genetics to uh, front page headlines worldwide. Chagask has now sequenced the genetic code for the humble potato. Dan, what was the main reason behind this project? Well, I'd like to point out first that maybe Chagas didn't sequence the potato genome. There's, a, there's a 150 authors on this paper, so it was a truly international uh, collaborative, collaborative effort, and Chagas participated, uh, I think you could describe this as punching above our weight for the size, for the size of the country. There are numerous reasons to sequence the potato genome, and I suppose each of the 150 partners had their own. Our interest here at uh, Oak Park is the fact that we've had a potato breeding program now for the last 40 years. Uh, It's one of Ireland's uh, few commercial potato breeding programs. It's the only one in the Republic. And uh, that's been very, very successful. It's released 36 uh, varieties. People will be familiar with some of them, uh, varieties like Cara and uh, more recently Rooster, which is Ireland's favourite variety with bred here at Oak Park. We're interested in leveraging the, gen- uh, the genome sequence of potato to breed better potatoes. There was quite a significant amount of data generated. Uh, I noticed the paper says that uh, 96.6 gigabytes of uh, raw sequence from what it calls two next-generation sequencing platforms were used in the project. How was the uh, data sequenced? We started out describing the human genome project, and um, all sequencing projects thereafter have really, in all other species, have benefited from the advances that were made in the human genome uh, project because what it spawned was a, an enormous uh, uh, technological drive to make sequencing more efficient and uh, uh, cheaper and faster. And you might have even heard about these, this idea of the $1,000 human genome, where we, the idea is that you would be able to sequence an entire uh, human genome for $1,000. Now it could cost billions to, to, to sequence it the first time, so that's a huge advance. Uh, and some of these technologies uh, have allowed, uh, which we refer to collectively as next generation sequencing technologies, were the things we employed uh, here to, um, to sequence the potato genome in a, in a much faster manner than we would have otherwise been able to do. Um, basically, all sequencing involves generating very, very short reads of about between 400 bases or letters of the genetic code and as few as 35 letters of the genetic code, so sequencing small chunks of DNA, and then using a huge amount of computer power to overlay these onto each other, and what we call a reassemble 
the, the entire genome out of these very, very small chunks of DNA. This is a process called shotgun sequencing. I think you can see why. It's kind of akin to taking a huge, long ticker tape with the genome written on, being written on it and chopping it into small bits and throwing it into a bin and pulling it back out again and assembling it from that. Now, you can see that if you only had one copy of the genome, you wouldn't be able to reassemble it because you wouldn't know what order things occurred in. But if you had two genomes or three genomes in there, you could, and the cutting was done randomly on each genome, then you would be able to use the overlap between different breaks to reassemble the genome. What we did in the sequencing project was to sequence one, effectively 100, what we call 100-fold coverage of the genome. And that depth, what we call depth of sequencing coverage allowed us to reassemble a goodly portion. I think it's 86% of the genome from that. Uh, now, it's a very simple process when you describe it like that, and that genuinely all is all it is. But in order to achieve it, as you say, there, are, there was a huge amount of data generated, and you need a, an enormous, uh, I guess, I guess you always describe it as a server farm. Uh, and, and, and our partners in the Beijing Genomics Institute were responsible for most of the data analysis because they've got a, a facility at, the B, at BGI which is solely dedicated to, to, to genome sequencing and they did a lot of the grunt work involved in this, in, in this process. And the uh, process also brought out some uh, interesting information about, uh, I suppose, what I could call the arms race between the potato and uh, potato blight. If you could tell me about that, maybe. Yeah, so one of the ways in which we can utilise the information here, um, uh, especially in, 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 in terms of being in, in breeding terms, is to try and develop potato varieties that are more disease resistant. Uh, and so one of the things we've known for a very long time is that there are a class of genes in potato called resistance genes. We just call them R genes for short. Uh, and those confer resistance on to, to various forms of a wide range of diseases and blight is still the most uh, important disease in potato. And the function of the R gene is to detect the pathogen, the, the, the blight, as it, as it comes into the cell. What, what happens is blight will land on a potato and effectively inject molecules into the potato cell. And the goal of those molecules is to try and take over the potato cell. Uh, these molecules that it injects in are called effector molecules because of that, because they're actually doing something within the cell. And potato, in, 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 in return, has developed a, effectively a surveillance system. So these R genes are the first line in a surveillance system. And they can effectively detect these effector molecules. And once an R gene def um, detects an effector molecule, it starts a signaling process, which causes the cell that's being invaded to commit suicide. Cells. This is apoptosis or cell suicide. It's not too dissimilar to the way uh, the human immune system works. In, in principle, there are very, very fundamental differences as well, though. Uh, and in response, then, the pathogen will try and change its effector molecules in order to avoid the system. And so this is why we call this, what we refer to this as its arms race between the pathogen and, uh, and the host, the potato. Uh, and knowing where where all of the, of the R genes are in potato and what they look like and how they work is very, very important for us in, 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 in being, being able to come up with ways of improving our ability to develop disease-resistant potatoes. And the potato has also undergone uh, quite a lot of selective breeding since uh, being introduced to Europe a few hundred years ago. So uh, um, you looked both at what it's called, I suppose, a very cultivated potato here and also something that was a lot more primitive, a lot more closer to its 
original wild state, I suppose. Yeah, uh, so it was uh, the we sequenced, we did it, we generated a lot of sequence information in two potato clones or cultivars of varieties. One was called DM, one was called RH, and DM is not quite a wild species, but it's a primitive, what we would refer to as a primitive cultivated species. It's a sort of uh, species that you f- find. Uh, in use in, in by by indigenous peoples in Central and South America uh, e- e- even now, uh, and as you say, it hasn't gone undergone a lot of intense selection pressure for use in monoculture type agricultural systems like we have in Europe. The other clone that we looked at was a, a genotype called RH, and that has under, uh, undergone a lot of this selection. And what we were able to do in in both sequencing the two genomes, but also looking at differences in gene expression. Uh, between these two uh, uh, varieties is to pinpoint the types of uh, metabolic pathways or systems that have been placed under selective pressure in order to turn something from that that, that has relatively few tuber, few small tubers into something that has numerous large tubers which are full of starch. And you can see, for instance, that things involved in starch uh, degradation or down-regulated in one and up-regulated in the other. And things involved in starch production are up-regulated in one and down-regulated in the other in the way you would expect uh, that to go moving from a small tuber to a large tuber. So what's next at the Crop Research Institute? Are there further studies planned with potatoes involving this research? Our focus now is how do we best use this research in order to breed better potatoes. What we're interested here in the breeding program is in doing is in exploiting this to breed better potatoes. We've already been using for the last few years a process called marker-assisted selection in in our breeding program. Uh, And that's a process which is quite distinct from GM, which is something entirely different. uh, Where in in marker-assisted selection, we use a genetic fingerprinting-based approach the same kind of uh, technology they use in human forensics to track genes from parents that are in our breeding program so that when we make a cross between two individuals, one may be disease susceptible, the other may be disease resistant. What we're interested in doing is identifying the progeny individuals from that cross which have the resistance that we're interested in. Now, in the normal set of circumstances, what we need to do is, is bulk up the material that we got over a period of four or five years because we get one tuber from each individual first. We need about 20 or 100 tubers before we can do these destructive disease resistance testing. So that takes us about six or seven years to get to that point in the program. With marker-assisted selection, whereby we've identified the gene, the specific gene that's in one of these parents that's causing the resistance effect, we can take a tiny little bit of leaf material uh, do this genetic fingerprinting analysis and immediately identify those individuals with the gene and those individuals without the gene. And if blight resistance, for instance, is our major goal, we can immediately discard all of those individuals that don't have the blight resistance gene. And this is before we ever see the effect of that gene, which would be in, a, in the normal set of circumstances six years later before we could test for it. So it's really, I think, you know, I would describe it as supercharging our ability to select for certain traits at a very much earlier stage in the potato breeding program. It takes 15 years to, to breed a potato variety. So if you can select for certain traits six years earlier in that process, you can see how that's going to make the whole system radically more efficient. Dan, thank you very much. I'm sure eventually we'll see some of the products of this research on our supermarket shelves. Thank you for talking to Siberia.
Now it's time to get elementary. Oxygen, gold and uranium might not seem to have too much in common, but they're all part of an ongoing exhibition at the Science Gallery called Elements, the Beauty of Chemistry, which runs until the 23rd of September. We sent cybernaut Sylvia Leatham along to check out the show. So I'm standing inside the Science Gallery in Dublin, where their latest exhibition is Elements, the Beauty of Chemistry. And uh, Sean O'Boyle, who works for the Science Gallery, is going to tell me a little bit more about the exhibition. Hi, Sean. Hi, how are you? Um, so yeah, so the exhibition is called Elements. And what we wanted to do was take the chemical elements, the building blocks of everything in the universe, and kind of talk about them and show them in a really interesting way, in a way that would kind of captivate people's imagination and in a way that they could actually get some hands-on interactive experience with them as well. How would you define an element and can you give us a few examples just to... It's a, that's a, it's a, it's a surprisingly tricky one. I mean I would, I would say that if you take any matter and, and break it down to its smallest component and you end up with you know a, a single atom and depending on what that matter is you'll have an atom that is a different element, if that makes any sense. So it's okay. kind of the smallest, the smallest um, part of, of of matter, I guess. Um, uh, you have a, an exhibition here that's, uh, that tells you how, which elements are in the human body, in each person's body. So maybe you could tell us what some of those are. Yeah. Well, we have elements of life, um, which is a, a scales that you can stand on, and it calculates which elements make up each individual that stands on it. So it takes your weight and then it calculates what percentage of oxygen you're made of, what percentage of carbon, what percentage of calcium, and all of the different elements that, that, that make up a person. And it's kind of surprising the, the amount of different elements that you're made of. And, you know, yeah, I actually stood on the scales there last week and got the print out and it was like pages and pages of all these different things, gold and silver and everything. Yeah, I didn't know it was in my body. So you've actually been asking people, members of the public, to bring in various elements. Uh, why, why is that? Yeah, we, we wanted to make this a bring-your-own-element exhibition. So it was one of the ways that we could show people that the elements were part of our everyday lives, that things that we, we see and touch every day actually contain these elements we might never have thought of before. And what we've done is we've created a, a kind of a giant periodic table that people can bring in things. And, you know, maybe they have an iron nail or a silver earring or something maybe a bit less obvious, like a smoke alarm that contains an element called americium that's radioactive. And, or, you know, maybe they don't know um, which elements they're bringing in and they can come in and talk to us about, you know, what they think they might have or if they want to find out what's in a particular object that it's they have. It's kind of like Antiques Roadshow of the periodic table. Yeah, yeah, it's much more interesting <laughs> than Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> uh, just to refresh our, our memories, um, what, what is a periodic table? Well, yeah, I mean, the periodic table is, it's aside from being this kind of now iconic design, it's a really useful way to classify the different chemical elements. So, you know, each each element has a di have have each element has different properties. They have different physical and chemical properties. And when Dmitri Mendeleev back in the 1860s started looking at the elements had, that had then been discovered, he noticed these kind of patterns that were starting to occur. He was a Russian chemist, I believe. Yeah, exactly. And he was writing a textbook at the time, and he wanted to kind of find a logical way to describe these elements. So he he started arranging them by their properties and he found that there was this repeated pattern that came about and 
you know, that was kind of the basis of the periodic table. And Mendeleev was brave enough to leave gaps um, in that table where an element didn't fit into the, the pattern that was starting to emerge. And that turned out to be, you know, really useful because as new chemical elements were discovered, they filled in those blanks. So we really wanted to explore that kind of iconic design of the periodic table in this exhibition as well. So now I'm upstairs in the science gallery and I'm about to head into a dark corner where it says there's no photography and uh, Jessie from the science gallery is here to tell me a bit more about this part of the exhibition. So this is the portraits of the elements so inside you'll find different podiums that contain different pieces so we, we either have artistic representations just using those elements or it's a, an artifact that's been donated for use to explain what the element is. Okay, so we've got a, a selection of elements. Um, maybe you can talk about some of your favourite ones? Yeah, uh, I'd like to talk about mercury, actually. Okay, let's go over and have a little look at mercury. So, yeah, so there's a kind of, um, looks like a plate and some kind of liquid that seems to be vibrating on it. And then next to it, there's a little glass jar with some kind of yellow powder in it. Mm -hmm. so. Can you tell us what this is all about? Yeah, this is our dish of mercury. And underneath we have a speaker that's playing a really low bass noise that's <laughs> causing the mercury to vibrate. And then this, this beaker with the yellow powder, it's our canary in the coal mine, if you will. It's <laughs> okay. a beaker of sulphur that will react if any mercury gas escapes. Um, okay. And it will turn red because mercury gas is poisonous. It attacks the nervous system. Um, if you've heard the phrase mad as a hatter? Yes. So hatters used to use mercury to starch their, their materials to keep them straight and it, oh. it attacked their nervous system as I was saying. Oh, okay. So, so they would go a bit mad crazy. as a hatter. Yeah. Wow. Gosh, yeah. I actually never knew the origins of that phrase. Mm. Okay, so as long as that powder stays yellow, we're okay. As long as it's yellow, yeah. Okay, great. Okay, so shall we go and look at something else then? I see a kind of sparkly diamond ring here. It's ah. catching my attention. Yeah, this, this diamond <laughs> is not all that it appears oh, to be. Okay, it says uh, carbon up above. Yeah. So. Well, do, you, do you know how diamonds are formed? Um, something to do with coal? Yeah, if you, if you have coal and it's under a lot of pressure over a long period of time with a lot of heat, it will eventually form diamond. Um, oh. Now, scientists can now scientifically do this in labs. They can recreate diamonds. They can make fake diamonds oh. by recreating the process. Now, the, the thing about this ring is that this is actually made from the remains of a 68-year-old man in Florida. Wow. When, Tell me more. When he died, he was, instead of being buried, he was cremated, and they extracted the carbon from his ashes and, using this process, turned him into a diamond. Wow, that is, that is amazing. It brings a, a whole new meaning to the phrase family jewels, anyway. <laughs> it certainly does, it certainly does. Now, have you ever thought someone you know might be a psychopath? The journalist and writer John Ronson's new book is called The Psychopath Test, and Nuala Kane is here to discuss it with us now. Um, Nuala, what is The Psychopath Test? Well, The Psychopath Test is actually a checklist which was devised by a Canadian psychologist called Bob Hare, and it's basically used to diagnose psychopaths. Okay, and what is a psychopath? Well, according to John Ronson's new book, the best description that I think was told him by a UCL psychologist who showed a picture of a very frightened face to a psychopath. 
um, and asked him to define what he saw in the picture. And this man was unable to define or name or in any way relate to the face that he saw in the picture. Uh, the only thing he could say is, that's what the people I kill look like before they die. So he had no, he had no concept of what fear was, essentially. No, he lacked the empathy to relate to that person's emotion. And that's and, and a lack of empathy is one of the uh, one of the items on on the checklist that's used to identify psychopaths. Well, the checklist criteria are quite numerous. There's twenty altogether, okay. and they range from things like glibness and superficial charm, or a grandiose sense of self worth, to much more negative things like a lack of remorse or guilt, uh, being callous, having a lack of empathy and having a failure to accept responsibilities for your own actions. Now, this sort of uh, checklist approach to uh, diagnosing uh, psychiatric patients is quite controversial, isn't it? Well, checklists are controversial in general. I suppose where the whole checklist idea came from initially, or one could say that it originated from, is an experiment uh, that was performed by a a psychologist called David Rosenham, which was kind of mischievous. Uh, Mr. Rosenham recruited seven friends and the eight of them dispersed themselves among psychiatric hospitals uh, across the United States. Now, they presented themselves for admission to these psychiatric hospitals by telling psychiatrists that they could hear a voice in their head telling them three words, empty, hollow and thud. All eight of these uh, uh, mischievous psychologists um, were admitted to the hospital. Their average uh, length of time staying in the hospital was 18 days altogether and all eight were put on antipsychotic drugs. After admission, their instructions were to act completely normally uh, and essentially to convince the psychiatrist that they were sane. Uh, however, they found the only way that they could do this was by first admitting to being insane and then pretending to recover. That was the only way they could get out of the psychiatric hospital. Wow, that's quite a fascinating experiment. And, and I believe that, that the Rosenheim experiment uh, had, a, had a significant influence on psychiatry and the way diagnoses were made after that. Well, Robert Spitzer was a psychiatrist in the States who saw this experiment and he really used it as, I suppose, a platform to launch what we call uh, the DSM, the Diagn- Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is used across the United States by psychiatrists uh, to diagnose people of all sorts of, uh, with all sorts of psychiatric conditions. Um, now, the DSM-4 in its own sense, is quite controversial in that it's been criticised as being overly prescriptive, as categorising normal things as being psychiatric. Now, some kind of notable examples that John Ronson brings up are, number one, caffeine-induced disorder, which I probably suffer from today and many days, (laughs) and a second one, sluggish cognitive tempo disorder, which some might classify as laziness and not necessarily a psychiatric condition. Is that the opposite of caffeine-induced disorder now? I think so. I think it's uh, the two hour uh, trough caffeine levels <laughs> or something like that. Um, so it's, it's kind of interesting in that John Ronson really kind of talks about how this sort of checklist ethos can in fact um, make you become a bit trigger happy or a bit power mad. Uh, he, he talks about getting the power to spot psychopaths uh, after doing a course uh, with Bob Hare on how to use the checklist. And this is kind of interesting because he suddenly starts to see psychopathic traits in people all around him. And one of the more notable examples is uh, when he talks about uh, writer and journalist A.A. A. Gill 
Hill, who uh, has criticised a number of uh, John Ronson's documentaries and also uh, admitted to shooting a baboon uh, while on holiday. And and John Ronson kind of figures, oh, maybe this is uh, diagnostic criteria enough um, to have A.A. Gill uh, classified as a psychopath. So John Ronson is this sort of prominent and quite humorous journalist um, who doesn't necessarily have any medical or scientific background and he, he kind of de- he jumps into this whole world of psychiatry um, how does he how does he handle this kind of quite complex material well I think I'll start by saying that I've read a number of reviews of the book in like national and international media and he's quite heavily criticized for not really coming down too heavily on one side or another with regard to psychiatry but I would see this as more of a positive thing and that I feel he kind of raises a number of issues for example he does argue that overdiagnosing uh, mental conditions can play into the hands of, for example, pharmaceutical companies. And he talks about the diagnosis of childhood bipolar disorder, which many psychiatrists uh, don't think uh, exists as a legitimate condition. And he talks to parents of children who uh, have been medicated since the age of four years, four years old um, because of this kind of diagnosis of bipolar disorder. So he comes down on on that kind of side. But as well, um, he spends time with Scientologists in the book. And Scientologists, of course, are notably anti-psychiatry. And this time he spends with them kind of brings to light uh, the fact that if we consider everything or every phenomenon or every sort of um, behaviour uh, as just uh, like a variant of normal or as, as on the normal spectrum. Yeah. We also managed to dismiss people as sane or sort of condemn them uh, to suffering and, and that that's not a good thing to do either. So I think that John Ronson really respects uh, the complexity of his subject matter and all the while he's very entertaining, very humorous and it's a real narrative book which I think does a great thing for science communication and for demystifying psychiatry which is an area that many people find very difficult difficult to comprehend. Okay, um, well it sounds fascinating. Um, Thanks very much for that, Nuala. Now, summer is normally a quiet time for science events, but there's still a lot going on around the end of August. Um, On Sunday the 28th, uh, our very own Trina O'Connell is presenting a squishy circuits workshop in the Science Gallery. The workshop involves building circuits and electronic sculptures from conductive dough. It costs four euro per person and you can find out further details at sciencegallery.com. Astronomy Ireland's annual fundraiser, the Starbecue, happens on Saturday the 27th of August in Roundwood, County Wicklow. With Michelin-starred chefs and some of the most powerful telescopes in Ireland, everyone is guaranteed a great evening at the event. Further details and tickets available at astronomy.ie. Also on the weekend of the 27th 28th of August, there will be a range of talks and guided walks at the Botanic Gardens in Glasnevin in Dublin to celebrate National Heritage Week. Some of the events will include wood turning to a tour of the rare and old trees that grow in the garden. Visit botanicgardens.ie for more information. And finally, Irish Hackerspaces Week is running from the 20th to the 28th of August. The various hackerspaces around the country are hosting a range of events to get you thinking about your next project, whether it's scientific, crafty or electronic. For further information, you can check out uh, the website for the Dublin hackerspace, that's tog.ie, uh, T-O-G.ie, the Galway hackerspace, which is 091labs.com, and the Limerick hackerspace at milklabs.ie. That's all for this week's episode of Cybernia, which is brought to you in association with Discover Science and Engineering. You can find us on the web at cybernia.ie, on Twitter under at cybernia, and at facebook.com forward slash cybernia. You can also email us at podcast at cybernia.ie. Thanks to all our contributors, thanks to Near FM and to our producer Gavin, and thanks to you for listening. Mm-hmm.